This is a message from Grace Church, located in Frisco, Texas, a suburb of Dallas-Fort Worth. Grace Church is affiliated with Sovereign Grace Ministries. The Grace Church website is gracechurchfrisco.org. The speaker for this message is Pete Payne, pastor at Grace Church. In the book of Titus, the second week in a series on Titus, which will take us up to the Christmas season. So if we get done with Titus and you've not bought all your Christmas presents... You're going to be in trouble. Titus chapter 1. Craig began this message last week. Um, At the beginning of Titus, Paul is introducing himself once again, knowing that this letter would be read down through the church ages, and he's reminding Titus of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness. And as if you you were here last week, remember Craig emphasized that grace leads to godliness, and he said that we're, we're always going to be in danger of either emphasizing grace and forgetting about godliness or emphasizing godliness and forgetting about grace. And there needs to be this balance. And this book is about that balance. It's about the grace of God that always produces godliness. Now, this passage we're going to look at today is about the qualifications for elders. Uh, you probably have that, t- that title in your Bible. That title is not inspired. Uh, Paul did not put that qualifications for elders in there. But this is applicable to all of us. Even if you're not an elder, even if you're never going to be an elder, even if you are a woman and not going to be called to be an elder, the reason this is applicable to all of us is as Paul's going to teach Titus here and remind Titus as he is planning to go to these churches across the island of Crete, these new churches that don't have elders, don't have pastors in them yet, he's going to remind us that God specifically calls elders, raises up elders to help establish order in the church. And that order applies to all of us. So this message, we all need to hear this, whether you're me and I happen to be one of the elders in this church, whether you're one of the other elders sitting out here, whether you're going to be called to be an elder someday, whether in this church or in another church, or whether you're never going to be called to be an elder because you are a part of bringing order and responding to God's order in the church. So we all need to hear and understand what God wants for his church. And here's a specific uh, application from God's Word. But before we get into that, I want to tell you a story about the trees that are in my front yard. I have two trees in my front yard. Actually, I have more than that, but I have two primary trees. They are oak trees. When I first bought the house, they put the wrong kind of oak trees in, trees that I did not want. So they removed those trees and they put in two red oak trees, supposedly red oak trees. I'm learning that there's not a lot of people that can tell me exactly what kind of a trees I have in my front yard. But the one on the left side of the driveway has grown over the seven years that we've been there into this beautiful tree. Uh, one of the arborists that came out called it a specimen tree. It's this beautiful big tree. It's growing rather qu- quickly for a red oak. And it must have found a good source of water, probably. That's why my water bill is higher than it should be. But it's probably it's found a good source of water under there. And it's growing well, green leaves, all leafed out, lots of branches. Um, Birds are up there making their nests, and everybody loves this tree. Then there's this other tree that is actually, it's the fourth tree I've had in this same spot, which probably should be a hint to me. But this uh, tree was replaced a couple of years ago by the builder because the previous tree apparently was a pin oak instead of a red oak. And so they came and replaced the tree, and it's been growing fine. It leafed out just very well the first spring that it was in the ground, and then the second spring it's leafing out. It's smaller, obviously, than the other tree, but it's trying its best to catch up to the other tree and provide shade. The other tree provides shade for my garbage cans on the side of the house. This tree is meant to provide shade for the front of my house, which... Facing west, as you all know, in Texas can be about 8,000 degrees. So I'm just looking forward to the day when this tree is going to be shielding my house with these wonderful branches. Third spring, leaves out again, no dead branches. But in the middle of this summer, in the middle of July, it started to turn brown. Now I know that fall comes early in Texas and freezing nights start to occur somewhere around the 1st of August. But I thought this was probably a little earlier than typical But I knew that last year my mother-in-law had a similar kind of tree and it turned brown all the leaves fell off in the summer and then it actually leafed out again in the fall. So I thought maybe that's what's happening 
That's what I was praying. But as the branches started to dry up and fall off of the tree, anytime there was more than a four mile an hour wind, I realized, I think this tree is dead. And I was right. So I called the, the county extension office and sent pictures of leaves. And I was trying to uh, determine that this tree was once again a pin oak. And that's why it was dying. And uh, they sent me back word that, no, in fact, this is a red oak. And you're going to have to replace it. I got a, a card from the HOA. It was not a sympathy card. They were concerned about the dead tree in my front yard. They were not concerned that my tree had died. They were concerned that I had a dead tree in my yard. And they wanted me to replace it. So, I cut it down. And I burned it in my fire pit in the back. And as we were burning it and slicing it up into logs to roast marshmallows for my granddaughter, which wasn't the purpose that I thought the tree was going to, to have, but we realized that there's holes all through the tree had been eaten by beetles. The beetles came and ate the tree. So, it had a different purpose in life and a problem that I was not aware of. If I had had somebody there who knew about trees and who knew what to look for and who was able to say, you know, this tree, the bark's a little different. You know, this tree should be bigger by now. You know, this tree, something's looking a little funny this summer. You know, as those leaves are turning brown, I think we have a problem. If I had had somebody who could have been an expert or at least known more than I did and had been able to help me with that, maybe we could have salvaged the tree. Maybe they would have caught the beetles. They would have seen beetles on the front porch three years ago when they probably first started eating the tree. But I didn't have that. What does that have to do with Paul's instruction to Titus? Let's see if we can figure it out. Reading in Titus chapter 1, verse 5. He writes to Titus, Titus, this is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Let's pray. Father, we just pray that you would open our hearts and our minds and our abilities to receive your word, that you would allow your word, the seed of your word, to fall on fertile soil today, that our hearts would be open to you, that we would hear what you have to say to each one of us. Lord, you know that every person in this room is in a different place. Every person in this room has need for you to minister to their specific issues, their specific needs, and you are able to do that. So Lord, we glory in your power and your might this morning. We ask you to fulfill every purpose for your word this morning and meet every need according to your riches and glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Paul wants Titus to know, Paul wants us to know that God calls elders to help establish order in his church by producing or modeling, promoting and protecting the godliness that must come from the true grace of God. So, as Craig said last week, grace produces godliness in believers. Elders are called by God to help establish order in the church by producing this godliness in their own lives and modeling it, by promoting and by protecting the godliness that must proceed from grace. So we're going to look at a couple of different things. The first one is that God calls elders to produce. Now, I use this word advisedly because elders obviously do not produce godliness in and of themselves. But that tree that's in my yard, which is a beautiful tree, it didn't snap its fingers one day and said, I think I'll be an acorn and I think I'll grow into a beautiful oak tree. God is producing something in that tree, but the tree through the life that's in it, through the grace that's in it, is producing what looks like a beautiful big oak tree that's doing a wonderful job of shading my trash cans, okay? It is a great tree. So when I say produce, I'm not talking about as the source, but as the, in this person's life, as Titus is looking over the landscape and he's saying, 
Okay, who should be the elders here? They need to be people that, the, that there's a produce, there's the fruit of the grace that God has placed in them. They, they need to be real believers. There needs to be evidence that these men are believers. Okay, so that's point number one. In Crete, this is obviously new churches. Paul had been there, apparently, with Titus, had to leave Titus there and go to do something else. So he didn't get to finish what he typically does. Because typically, when Paul plants churches, he establishes the order in the church and puts elders into the church. He establishes that. If you go back through the book of Acts, you'll see that's his pattern. He writes to Timothy in Ephesus. He writes to Titus on Crete. And in both cases, as he's explaining how to set up the churches, how they should be put into order, elders are a part of that. So it's important for the elders to know what they're supposed to do. It's important for you as a church to know why the elders are in the church and why we need to have elders. Why are there churches out there that don't have elders? Well, that wouldn't be according to a biblical pattern. There are some folks, there's been some teaching over the last 50 years that I've been alive that it's better for us not to have pastors. Well, it may be because of the qualities of certain pastors, including uh, in many days us here, but that's not a biblical pattern. The church is supposed to have an eldership and uh, it's supposed to have actually multiple elders, a plurality of elders. So that's one of the reasons it's very important that we hold fast to the word and come back to what the Lord has said. The terms elder and bishop or overseer, both of which are used in this passage, and then pastor are three interchangeable terms. As you go through the New Testament, you'll see that these words are used for the same person. First Peter, uh, he talks about all three of these in the same passage, referring to the same people. And over and over again, you'll see the interchangeability. So these are probably different functions, but it's a role within the church of leadership, of care, of watching over, of making sure there are no beetles, of making sure that the growth in the church is good. All of those kinds of things are what elders are called to do in the church. We see it throughout. I mentioned already, elders are called, it's almost always plural elders. We talk about a plurality of elders. Here in our church, we have three elders, Craig, Rob, me. We have Jeff on staff as an elder in training, as a pastor in training. So we, that's the eldership of this church. In the future, we hope to have many more elders as the church grows here. We hope to see elders raised up and sent out to plant churches. One of our great desires would be to see churches planted all over this region from this church. We would be able to send out people and leaders prepared to go and and lead churches in other areas, down in Dallas, over in Fort Worth, in other areas of the state. We're looking forward to having another church coming into our region, being planted in Austin next summer. But we're hoping that's just the beginning of multiple churches in all the, the wonderful areas of this state and other states around it. Notice that Titus is to appoint the elders. So Paul is saying, I want you to do this. Go to the towns, go amidst the churches. The churches have already started. They're gathering, but there's no leadership. There's no elders that have been appointed. So Titus, as Paul's representative, is to appoint these elders. But all of the qualifications that, are going to be, that we're going to study here in a few minutes are observable things. So by uh, implication here, the churches are going to be involved because observations are going to have been made as we brought Rob on staff and we, we asked the, the Lord for, uh, to raise elders up in this church and Rob came to this church. Rob was a pastor in another church, felt led of the Lord to leave and to come to be with us and he wor- went and worked a different job for a couple of years and we watched him. We watched him lead a community group. We watched him with his family. We watched him. We talked to some of you who were here at that time and we said, does God seem to be raising up? So there's a, there's a give and take. We're called to appoint the elders, but we need you to help us. And, and it's part of a community event. We've all, we also sent Rob to the pastor's college, so he had other eyes on him. And as Rob has interacted with other men, other pastors and elders in our region of churches, all of them would affirm, yeah, this guy is certainly called. He's got a gift. His character meets those qualifications. So we went through that process. It's a great process. It involves... Extra local people like Titus or like other people in our region or like our pastor's college. It involves the local elders here. That would be the, the, a significant factor. It involves you. As we considered sending Josh Jordan. Some of you know Josh. Some of you don't. Josh was in our church. After Rob went to the pastor's college, we sent Josh. Same process. Josh went. He was affirmed. God seems to be calling him. And then he went to Seguin, one of our sister churches, to serve alongside a man who had really been 
on his own for many, many years in a wonderful church, but needed some significant help. And Josh brings a lot to that particular church. He's grown to love that church. And as we gathered with the pastors from our region this past week when we were at the conference, had a wonderful time, but the Texas region is growing. It's filling up a room now. We've got a number of elders. It was great to see Josh and see how he has grown in his relationship with Bob Odom. Well, that's because you all helped us to identify Josh Jordan as an elder. Even though he's not serving here, he is serving in one of our sister churches as an elder. Same process with Jeff, as we asked. Jeff is an intern right now. He's still in the process. We're still evaluating. Jeff is a tremendously gifted guy, and we are very excited to have him on staff and all the things that he's bringing. But if you'll recall, if you were here, we did the same thing. We're asking, what have you observed? Is there anything in his life? We're trying to see if Jeff fits these qualifications that we're going to go through. So, as we, as, a, a, as member churches, as we've been talking with some of our sister churches, this is all about what's called polity. And we've got, uh, uh, we had a group of men from around the country, from different backgrounds, that have been putting together a proposal for all of our churches about how we will do things like this. How will we establish elders? What should, what should be the relationship between our church and the church in Houston, where Craig is this morning, preaching, or our church in the church in Seguin or Midland. How should we relate to each other? That's all biblical polity. We want it to come out of Scripture, and we just watched, had this wonderful experience of watching these uh, seven or eight men who have gotten together and given up their time, in addition to all their local church responsibilities, and studied, and they came from very different backgrounds, and it was just a, a, a wonderful thing to watch them walk in unity and work in unity and present a proposal to us that we're going to put on the website so that you can read it. It's all about what happens within the local church. How should we be governed? How should things be put in order? And how should we relate then to other churches that we partner with? So, um, we, we love having elders raised up. We want to see many elders raised up. We want to make sure that we're, that we're adhering as closely as we can to the biblical standards. And we want you to continue to be involved not only by helping us to identify these people and seeing them raised up, but also in the way that you've been so responsive to the leadership of this church. And we are very grateful for your understanding, and not only your understanding, but how you press in to a biblical understanding and a biblical practice of being an orderly church. So, two categories of qualifications here. Uh, the elder or the, the elder-to-be, uh, the elder that we're looking at, the people that Titus is looking for are called to be above reproach or blameless in their relationships and they're called to be above reproach or blameless in their conduct. So what does he mean by this when he says above reproach or blameless? Does it mean they have to be perfect? If so, all of us are stepping down right now. We're all, other than Rob, who we're, we're, we're pretty sure he's perfect. We're not quite sure yet. But the rest of us are definitely not perfect. That's not what he's talking about here. Let me read you a quote from a uh, pastor named Brian Chapel, who wrote a commentary on this particular passage. He writes this, A blameless, that's the NIV translation of the word, or an above reproach would be the ESV language as we read. In Paul's usage, blameless person is uh, one whom others have no obvious reason to accuse for living inconsistently with his faith commitments. Paul's blameless standard is based upon what others in the church and outside the church see and observe. It's not so much a standard for one's own internal assessment, like I don't look within and say, am I perfect, am I sinless, which would be required if the word such as sinless or even good intentioned was used, but rather it reflects the assessment of external community and extra local community, like Titus is here, uh, their observation, what others observe about a man being considered for office, bears on his qualification for office. In this passage, the way a man is regarded by those in the church is Paul's primary concern, but his reputation in the community is also relevant. And in Timothy, a, a similar list, he adds the, the phrase, well thought of by outsiders. So that's also part of the qualification for leadership. Because his life should serve as an example to others, an elder should seek to live so as to avoid others' concerns that he's guilty of a biblical offense or neglect. When blamelessness is properly understood as relation to one's community reputation, comfort may result for some and distress for others. 
There's comfort for those who realize that they're not disqualified for church office simply because their lives are not perfect or else there would be no church officers. At the same time, there may be distress for one who doesn't want to be held accountable for what others think about how consistently he lives according to Scripture. Such accountability grates against our independent spirit. Why should I have to worry about what others observe and think, we question. The answer is that Christian leaders should always be concerned for the testimony of the gospel. Because we're responsible for the spiritual welfare of others, we should seek to make the gospel credible to others by our example. In other words, this, this elder uh, candidate or the elders should be exhibiting a life that says, oh, the gospel's real. What is promised, grace, has come in and it's making a difference in this person's life. He was this, but now he's this. We're seeing something of power here. The fishermen have become preachers. How did that happen? Except by the grace of God. So that's what he's talking about here. God calls elders to help establish order in the church by producing, understanding that, again, they're not producing it in and of themselves, but the grace of God through them is producing something visible, promoting and protecting the godliness that proceeds from grace. So what are the qualifications? What is Titus looking for as we look at this passage? What should an elder look like? Think about my tree. Tree number two is not doing a very good job of shading the front of my house. Tree number one is doing an excellent job of looking beautiful and shading my trash cans. Wish I could just switch them, but that didn't work. Okay, there are relational qualifications. All of these and most important relationships obviously are in the home. It doesn't mean that other relationships are not significant as we evaluate, but we start in the home. This man who's called to be an elder, perhaps, is to be a one-woman man. Marital fidelity and clear biblical standards are being lived out in his, in his marriage. He looks like an Ephesians 5 husband. Okay, Now, not perfectly, doesn't mean he has never had a fight, he loves his wife, he never selfish or any of those things, but there's a, he's growing, he's looking more like that. Is that the testimony of people who know him, especially of his wife? He's leading his children. His children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. If you look at your footnote, this word believers is a little word that actually is translated faith. So in the NIV, it's translated his children are faithful. Here it's translated believers. We, we believe as you look at Timothy's passage about elders and this one, that what Paul is actually referring to is not little children who are born again, regenerated, that, they, that they're all Christians and they do that. That's, that would be fairly impossible. We would have to watch for the fruit of a person's life and no one with young children would be able to be a pastor. But that his children are faithfully following. They're not going off on their own. They're not living lives of debauchery and insubordination, as he puts in here, but they are the Father is able to keep them in line and, and train them in the gospel, and he's doing a faithful work. What's the picture of this family overall? Doesn't mean that there aren't going to be kids who from time to time go off and they're sinning. Surprise, surprise, pastor's kids sin and all these kinds of things. But the pattern overall of the family is one of a godly family, that the, the father and the mother are doing the work of training their children to know and to love the Lord. They're praying for their salvation. They understand grace. And they're, they're, they're putting this teaching before their children and they're assuring that their children are not wild and crazy and doing, doing things that are off the wall and they're not caring about it. So we're looking for families that not perfectly, but increasingly are exhibiting this kind of fruit. They're looking like that good tree more and more. Again, not perfect. What about his leading of children? Uh, these are small children. It's, the, the word also is, is uh, plural. It's multiple children. We're not talking about kids that are out of the house, adults, and somehow they're not walking with the Lord. That would not be a disqualifying thing. But children that are in the home, under the parents' authority, uh, the, the whole, having the whole family in view, the whole picture of that, that's what we're looking for. That's what Paul is saying to Titus. Look for this. Take stock of the house as a whole. We are also looking to see how they handle problems. When the kids have a, a bad attitude, when there's rebellion, when there's something, does that parent handle that with grace? Because as he's able to do that, as this dad is able to do that, Paul is saying, if he can do that, then it's looking like he could also handle the problems of people in the church. If he can't handle issues with his own children and point them back to the Lord and help them, if he doesn't know what to do, if he's lost in that situation... If you give him 500 people to care for, how's he going to do that? So that's the argument there. 
he must be a man who clearly, by grace, and again, imperfectly, but clearly is demonstrating this power that raised Jesus from the dead is at work in my heart and in my life. It's, it's showing forth, and people are seeing that. The community is seeing that. Titus is seeing that. Others outside the community are seeing that. And they're saying, yeah, this guy looks like a believer. Then, in addition to the relational qualifications, there are behavioral qualifications. Five negative, he lists here. Six positive, probably not meant to be an exhaustive list. There's some different things in Timothy and in Peter as well. But here are the negatives. Not arrogant. That word means overbearing. And it's literally not pleasing himself. So this is a guy who doesn't live for his own pleasure and glory. He doesn't live to make life easy for himself at the expense of others. He's other-centered increasingly. He's not quick-tempered. He's not somebody that just is constantly giving in to bursts of anger. You can imagine the, the destructive force that would have in the church if at any point in time you're, going, you're in, coming in for counseling or help from your pastor and he's just yelling at you. That's his response. Get over it! Single session therapy. There, I, won't, I won't get into that. You, some of you old guys remember the, uh, the one shaving commercial a long time ago, like 100 years ago. He slapped him across the face and said, thanks, I needed that. Well, we don't want, that's not the kind of pastor that we want. Okay, he's not a drunkard. This reference is specifically to wine here, but it refers to anything that would be addictive, that would have power over someone. So here's someone, he's not addicted to anything. He's not just lured away continually. He's not giving in to things that would pull him away from a pure devotion to the Lord. Does it mean he never sins in certain areas of, of drinking or of some other vices of pornography or whatever, that there's never been any of that in his life? No. But the pattern is he's putting that off. We're seeing him put it off. We're seeing him fight that fight. And he's growing in grace and in the godliness that grace is meant to produce. He is not violent. He's not a, literally a striker. He doesn't lash out physically or emotionally. He's not greedy for dishonest gain. He's not known as one who takes advantage of other people or takes advantage or cheats on his taxes or does these kinds of things. He's not greedy for dishonest gain. What, he, what, he, what you see is what you get. He's a man who lives according to the word of God. So then those are the put-offs as we see in the scripture. The Christian life is about putting the old man off and putting the new man on. An elder should be somebody who's doing that. Not completed, but he's doing it. Here are the put-ons that Paul lists for Titus. Is this guy hospitable? Is he opening his home? And more importantly, is he opening his heart to other people? When people meet with him, do they feel that he cares for them? He, he wants to listen. He's not just about, you're in my way, I've got more important things to do. My home is open. Well, come on over. Come on in. Is he hospitable? It's the opposite of the very first thing, overbearing, just pleasing himself. He loves what is good, especially doing good for others. He's self-controlled. He's not ruled by those ungodly passions or desires. He's upright. And in Scripture, this word always refers to he is living according to the Word of God. His life and the Word are matching up. When James said, talks about the mirror, and this man's looking in the mirror and he's seeing himself, and he's comparing his life to the Word, and he's saying, wait, I need, I need, cha I need to change here. My leaves are turning brown too early. I need to go get some help. I need to figure out what are these beetles doing? Can, is there a possibility for this to be changed? He's somebody who's pursuing that. And he, he knows, I want to live according to this. I need the Word. I need prayer. I need the, to study the Word. I need my friends. Is he that kind of a man? Is he holy? Not is he the holy man that we might... Some, is he some special guy that's in a unique situation, totally different than everybody else? Kind of like what the blacks were saying as they were up here, uh, we're not special. God did this. So we're not talking about holy in the sense of I am a holy person by what I do. We're talking about somebody who has clearly been set apart and he's being transformed by the renewing of his mind. You're seeing change occur. You're seeing growth. Every spring you're going, wow, tree is bigger than it was last year. That's what should be happening. And this man is disciplined. 
This is used of athletics, but we're talking specifically about somebody who, is, who knows that he needs to be disciplined in order to grow. He's in the Word. He's in prayer. He's fasting where appropriate. He's getting fellowship. He's getting accountability. He's getting whatever he needs, the one and others of the New Testament, in order to be growing. He recognizes that that's part of what being a disciple of Jesus Christ is about. So he's clearly a disciplined man. Once again... Paul is not looking for perfection. He's looking for patterns of change. He's looking for candidates for elderships that are growing in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice that all of these qualifications, every one of the ones we've looked at so far, both the absence of the negative and the presence of the positive are things that every disciple of Jesus is called to do and to be. Okay, these are not unique to pastors. We don't have this special class of holy men who are the pastors and everybody else is just a second class Christian, like the tree in the middle of my yard filled with beetles and we're, we're hoping for the best for you. Maybe you can get a few years of life in before we cut you down and put you in my fire pit. That's not what he's talking about. He's basically saying he's just somebody who is in the midst of the community. He's growing as a believer just like everybody else is supposed to be doing. But he may be a little bit ahead or he may be a little bit more mature. And then there are some other qualifications that would equally set him apart then to a specific task. But his character is to be that of a Christian, just like every one of our character is supposed to be as a believer. Listen to this quote again from my friend from this week, Brian Chappell. Uh, Really good commentary on this. The awareness that a Christian leader's example helps others learn to hope that their lives really can be different should help us understand that living above reproach or blamelessness is a ministry and not just something personal. Now listen to this. Godliness, in addition to the blessings it personally brings, should be perceived as a gift of hope that we share rather than a burden of laws we assume. You hear that? Godliness, as we produce godliness, not out of ourselves, but as the grace of God flowing through us produces godliness, and people know what we used to be, and they see a change, there's hope in that. So an elder is somebody who goes, I, in myself, I am weak. I'm not even an acorn. God made me an acorn. God is doing this work. The glory goes to him. But I want to be able to say like Paul, this is what I was, but by the grace of God, this is what I've become. And if there's hope for me, there's hope for you. That should be the testimony of all of us. Our lives are incarnational lifelines of the gospel to those drowning in sinful despair. How many people in Frisco have marriages that are falling apart? They're hopeless. And they're going to meet one of you and, and as we put order into this church and as we do teaching on marriage and as we do teaching on parenting and these other things, they're going to meet one of you and they're going to go, how, how did you get here? And you're going to be able to say, I wasn't even an acorn. It's not me. Let me tell you, I met somebody. I have reason for my hope. Let me tell you who his name is, what his name is. Okay, that's, what, that's what being a conduit of hope to people, lifeline of the gospel, I love that line, to those drowning in sinful despair. By our godliness, we demonstrate that the gospel has real power and we provide hope that change is possible, that tomorrow doesn't have to look like today. That's what we're called to do. The effect of one's example on others make it a glorious cause for living and for dying to self rather than a constraint on privilege. It's a glorious cause to living. It's exactly what Jesus did. I'll empty myself. I'll come and live among you. I'll lay my life down. I'll count you as more important than myself. We get to do that. And we're going to see people, we're going to see little children like, who knows what would have happened to Joseph if God had not moved on the black's heart? Who knows where he would have ended up? If you want to, want to, if you want to cry for a while, just tears of joy, go talk to them about this situation. And all the things, I mean, you just got a little snippet of it today. It is a powerful story of the grace of God working in parents' lives, extended families' lives, social workers' lives. That's exactly what is on display through what they're doing. Secondly, after God calls elders to produce, he calls elders to promote that godliness that proceeds from grace. 
Paul calls Titus to look for men who not only produce godliness by grace, again, with the understanding of what we mean by that, and are thus able to serve as examples to the flock, but also to look for men who are, in verse 9, holding firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that they may be able to give instruction in sound, in sound doctrine. These are men who are called as Christians. They look like true Christians. The work of the Spirit, the work of grace is working out in them, and you can see it. And they're also gifted to teach. So we read in Ephesians 4 that pastor teachers are called to equip the church to do the work of ministry. That's just part of the role of a pastor. That's what we're called to do. We're not called to do all the work of ministry. We're called to equip you to be good husbands and great wives or great husbands and good wives or whatever it is. We're called to equip you to be parents who understand what parenting is all about. That's why we're having a parenting seminar next week. We want to talk about those things. Why are you doing this? Why are you a parent? Why did God put you in this particular place? Why did He plant you as a tree right here with the little trees all around you? Why did he do that? There's a reason for it, and it's all in here. And we, need, we want to help you. We want you to know that for your own good so that you become these beautiful trees and all the children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren can rest in your shade by the grace of God, but also this, so that many will be affected. Many will be impacted. Prepare for the square. There's nothing better you could do to prepare for the square than become what God wants you to be. To let godliness take its full effect in your life through the grace that He's given you. Okay, listen to this now. What is the trustworthy word is taught? Very important. Very important. Listen. It's this word that we hear throughout the New Testament. By grace, you have been saved. And this not from yourselves. It's a gift of God so that no one can boast. By works of the law, no human being will be justified in His sight. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. The righteousness of God that comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. Every acorn. There is no distinction. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift. That's the word. There is no other word. There is no other way that you can be saved. It's by grace of, of God coming in, taking a dead life. A dead, an absolute nothing. We were nothing. We weren't even acorns. We weren't trees that just needed to be pruned and, and, and worked on a little bit. We were nothing. He called us to Himself. He adopted us. He loves us. He calls us joint heirs with His Son. He raised us up. We're, we right now are seated with Christ in heavenly places. All of that was done with nothing coming from us. That's the faithful word is taught. And, however... This free gift of God, as we heard from Craig last week, the theme of this entire book, this free gift of God's grace always produces godliness. Grace produces godliness in the believer. So I look at my tree. Is it really an oak tree? It's dying. The other one's living. What is it? Is it producing what it's meant to produce? What's happening here? We should be asking those questions. We should be examining. We should be looking. Paul's saying to Titus, in order to get the church in order, find the guys that this is in operation in and that have an ability to help other people to do this and put them in as elders. And then they can train other people to do the same thing. We want to send, I'd love for us to send dozens of churches into Texas and Oklahoma and Arkansas and Louisiana and all over the place. We need men to lead them. How many of you here are called to do that? How many of you here are called to lead community groups, which, you know, that you're helping us to do that pastoral ministry at, at this microscopic level, which is where the change really happens. I love our community group leaders. They, we could not pastor this church without them. And they're care for you. Okay. The free gift that is preached by all the New Testament writers as the basis of our salvation, as the basis, the only basis of our acceptance before God, no other basis, is not a grace that remains alone and fruitless. If it remains alone and fruitless, we need to be questioning whether it was truly gospel grace. Instead, it's a grace that has power to transform. It has power to open that little acorn up and cause it to send roots down and branches up. That's what the gospel's meant to do. Gospel grace produces godliness in the believer. Listen to our final quote of the day from Brian Chappell. 
my dear friend Brian Chappell this week, the apostle well recognized that the gospel's necessary emphasis on God's grace could make Christian leaders and all of the rest of us susceptible to using their liberties without concern for the effects upon others. This susceptibility is evident today in what he's calling the new legalism, quote, that can pervade circles where fresh winds of grace are, and I would say are legitimately, blowing away performance-based standards for God's love. The caricature of the old legalism existing among evangelicals taught this, you're not really a Christian, you're not really an oak tree, you're not really a Christian if you smoke or drink or chew or go with the girls that do. The new legalism, again, in quotes, seems to counter that, saying you're not really a mature, grace-understanding Christian if you don't smoke or drink or chew or go, go with the girls that do. You need to cuss and cut up at least a little bit just to show that you really do understand your freedom from the law. Hear what both of those are saying? On both sides of that, it's you have to do something to prove that you're a believer. And God says, that is a lie. You do nothing. Out of my great love for you, I chose you. I've adopted you. I adore you. I rejoice over you with singing, period. I made you an acorn. And in that acorn, I have placed power, grace, to grow into this incredible tree. And I want you to work with me now to become all that I've called you to be. Grace produces godliness in the believer. Conscientious Christian leaders ask instead, where are our own steps leading others? Toward or away from danger? Are we creating legalism by our prohibitions? Or are we leading into harm's way by our freedoms? The Apostle obligates us never to answer these questions merely on the basis of personal desire, but to evaluate how our example will affect others and then to govern our lives appropriately. So leaders are called to lay their life down. Actually, we're all called to lay our lives down. Think of the people that are going to be coming and the messy, beetle-filled lives that are going to come into our church to the glory of God. And you guys are going to be called to help us to put the church in order and keep reminding it's by grace, but not grace that stays by itself and doesn't grow. It's by grace that produces godliness over and over and over with marriages, with parenting, with personal counseling, with helping people with this sin and that sin and this beetle and that beetle. That's what we're going to be called to do. That's what it means to prepare for the square. Listen. It's not what we do or what we don't do that makes us believers, but it's purely the grace of an incomprehensibly kind, merciful, loving Father who chose us simply because He loves us and He gave us new birth, as Peter says, into a living hope through the death and resurrection of Jesus. You know that tree in my yard? I, didn't, I planted it, I watered it, but it's the life of God in it that's giving it the growth. This absolutely unmerited grace that saved us, if it's pure and truly the grace of God, is a seed that contains within it the power to change us, to produce righteousness in us, peace, joy, to cause us to become lovers of God and lovers of others, to eat and to drink and to do whatever we do for the glory of God. That's what it's doing. As the elders hold fast to this trustworthy word as we teach in our gatherings in our community groups in our homes wherever we have opportunity God's going to provide assurance that it's not an ordinary word it's not just a little block of wood that got put in the ground with no nothing in it to cause a tree to grow it's the seed of God which produces holy righteous godly people that's the word that we're proclaiming and that's the effect that it needs to have. It's this trustworthy word that's taught and then by you received and by those that you're called to teach, they're receiving it and then obeyed that alone is going to prepare us for the square. The word alone. 
read this one quote from one of the commentators this week. He said, Our lives should express the power of the gospel, but our lips should express the hope of the gospel. I think it's a good way to remember it. So here's the tree on the left side of my house that as you look at it, you're going, okay, something good is happening in this tree. There's, there's just evidence that the power that, the, the power that makes a tree a tree is at work in this tree. And it's growing strong. It's got a big trunk on it. It's not like this little puny, broken, dead one in the middle of the yard. There's some evidence there. So its life, to use this metaphor, its life is proclaiming something about just the vitality within. But if this tree could talk, and if he started saying things like, well, okay, you dumb little tree over there, look, just lift your branches up a little higher, sink your roots down deeper, you obviously haven't tapped into good source of water like I have. If he just started talking about me, look at me, do what I do, then he would be proclaiming with his mouth the glory of himself. Our lives should express the glory of the gospel, but our lips should express the hope of the gospel. What's our hope? I was dead in my transgressions and sins. I used to be an enemy of God, Paul says. I was a vile man, persecuting the gospel, hating being hated. But when the kindness of my God and Savior appeared, He saved me. And by the grace of God, I am what I am. That's our testimony. So our lips need to proclaim not our righteousness, not how many books of the Bible we have memorized, not how we walk things out and how I, 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 I am such a beautiful tree. But how did this happen? By the grace of God. I am what I am. Jesus said it this way, Let your light so shine before men, using a different image, that they see your good works on display. They see your life and they glorify God. How can that happen? It happens because they know we're nothing. We weren't even acorns. We were nothing. But they, we have to proclaim that. We have to share our testimony. We have to share what God has done. We have to do what Eric and Jamie did up here this morning. I didn't want to adopt any children. <laughs> Eric told me at one point in the process, he said, okay, we'll adopt as long as we don't have to adopt anybody that is sick, has an, even has an allergy, not even an allergy. Okay, how about cancer? I mean, it is unbelievable what God has done in that couple. That's powerful. The evidence of God's grace at work in them. He wants to do that in every one of you so that these little scrawny trees that maybe not, aren't even trees yet, they're some weed tree. They, they're not, they don't even know they're not a tree yet. Come in and they go, how did you get to be this way? I want to be like you. No, you don't want to be like me, but I'll point you to one that you want to be like. It's not me. The apostles, when they met before the Sanhedrin and they were preaching and they were being persecuted all right after the day of Pentecost and all these wonderful things were happening and they, they get pulled in by the, Pente- the, the Sanhedrin and they're asked to give a testimony and they proclaim the glories of God and they talk about, put, they put the pieces of the Old Testament together in ways that were astounding to these teachers and they said, they took note, these are just untrained, unschooled fishermen and here's what the Bible says in the book of Acts, they noticed, they knew, they'd been with Jesus. That's what we want to be. That's the people we want to be. Elders, other leaders, and then increasingly mature believers in our church, in any local church, need to consider who is it that we're called to? What is it that we're going to be doing? When I was in, uh, Betsy and I went to England for our anniversary in 2004, for our 25th anniversary, and I'd been there 10 years before. When I was there 10 years earlier, uh, I was amazed. I went to this Christian conference and they had tents set up and trailers and all these British people were out and it was, it was really, really uh, hot. And they were all drinking warm beer and wine, even the kids. Everybody was drinking. And, I, and I, we were just amazed, you know, coming from the background that we had come from. We were like, this is, this is interesting. You know, they, the three-year-olds are drinking warm wine, warm beer, and, and it, was, uh, it was a very interesting day. And I talked to some of the leaders there and they said, yeah, we just don't have trouble with alcoholism in our country. So it just, I mean, it's just because it's so normalized, we don't have an alcohol problem 
really in the country of England. And I thought, that's amazing. We went back, I went back 10 years later, and in 10 years, that, com- that had completely changed. It was rampant alcoholism. They were doing a special on the BBC while we were there about how desperately the country is in need of help with the rampant alcoholism that is now a major problem. So if I'm a leader in one of their churches, I'm now going to have to consider how is my teaching and my practice and what I'm doing because I'm here to protect and care and give help to these people that are coming in with alcoholism. How would my teaching and my practices need to change so that the truth of the gospel leads them to health and strength? in ways different than it would have been 10 years earlier when it didn't appear to be a problem. So how, did I, how was I to know that this tree in the middle of my yard was, was in the throes of death because of this beetle infestation? I needed to be paying close attention. And that's what your elders are called to do. And that's why we've asked your community group leaders to help us with that because we can't do it without them. We need your help. We need you to be in your community groups. We need for people to know, to have their eyes on you, to to make sure that you're growing in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. We want you to be pursuing that. Why? Because we want people to see on display this amazing group of trees all growing strong for the glory of God so that as others come in who don't even know who Jesus is, One thing I've noticed about living here is everybody in Texas is a Christian. Everybody. I told a bunch of the pastors that we met this week with, I said, you know, here's our mission field. Every single person you meet is a Christian. Not really. But they all think they are. So we need to strategize and think and we need to make sure that as people are coming who believe that they're believers but have never experienced the real transforming grace that most of you have. That they're looking at you and they're looking at themselves and themselves and they're like that, wait, I don't look like this. And they're going to want to come to you and you're not going to tell them, well, here's the five ways that I became big and strong. I have the spiritual P90X program and let me just help you with that. You're going to be able to say, by the grace of God, let me tell you about the grace of God. Let me tell you about humility and brokenness. Let me tell you about what it means to adopt a baby that you didn't want to adopt. because of the Lord because he entered my world and he's convicted me I want to be like him so let's prepare for this square you've been listening to a message from Grace Church for more information visit www.gracechurchfrisco.org